Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I am Jason Heck, co-hosting once again, and Minute 45 is what we're tackling today, and it begins with Marine Frost picking up something on the motion tracker and ends with Hicks stepping into a corridor. Suspense abounds. Yeah, and we have no guest today. Uh, Soli couldn't make it in for for the Friday episode. He had to have a, a, a three-day weekend with the family or something, I guess. So it's just me and Jason today to finish out the week. Uh, thanks for coming back, Jason. Well, I'm... I've often been called the best of what's left, and so uh, I'm happy to uh, to live up to that sobriquet today. And I'm happy to tackle this minute, which is aggressively suspenseful. I love it. Yep, it's definitely starting to ramp up the suspense a little bit, I would say, from kind of the slow burn of the corridor sequence that we went through last week. Uh, we t- take a pause to discover a few things in the med bay, and now we're ramping up to, I think, a little bit of a quicker pace of suspense building here, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 we talked earlier, you know, about the the whole corridor sequence, the Marines exploring the uh, the abandoned, uh, clearly devastated colony that that shows all the 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 signs of of a horrific struggle, and the time that Cameron took to set that up, and the echoes of a haunted house movie in that. And we, I think both of us kind of concluded that uh, there was just no way really that, that that sequence would exist in a, in a, in a version of that film made today. Yeah. Unfortunately that might be true. And you know, unless it were some sort of low budget, a 24 production or Annapurna production or something where they actually let people make movies the way they want to. But if it's uh, the budget you would require to make aliens today, it would not be allowed. Probably, you're right. Yeah, and it's just you know this is this is a, a guy who is happy to show you things as opposed to a lot of directors today or a lot of screenwriters who write about events and who talk about events. So characters will talk about events. So the Marines would have said, wow, this place was sure really spooky. I'm glad we got here into operations A-OK without a scratch. Yeah, I thought something was really going to happen. Thank goodness it didn't. And instead, Cameron gives us this very drawn out, very frightening sequence. And now, once again, after a little bit of respite, a little bit of normality in the med bay, and we uh, seeing Bishop sort of assert some of his competence and and Ripley is is getting a little bit more validation and, and the Marines are paying a little bit more attention to her. Now they're really paying attention because we start to hear a beep on the motion tracker. Right. So we got Frost here as our, you know, I guess our tech in this particular scene with Hudson off with Vasquez and the her group. He's carrying the motion tracker and yeah, he as soon as he picks up something, everybody kind of jumps to life, right? They've just seen evidence of this alien that Ripley has talked about. So pretty terrifying. So now they're on they're on edge a little and as soon as they hear that something's moving around them, they're not sure exactly what to look for. I guess what they're trying I guess what they're looking for that we'll see in this minute, kind of from the eye line that we get from each of the characters. And, and I don't know, maybe it's just an assumption based on viewer as a viewer, you're making an assumption that they're looking for face huggers, right? These guys don't know what else to look for. Right. And, and I think this is also, is this our first, well, yeah, this is our first beep on the motion tracker, right? In the director's cut, it's set off by the gerbils or, or whatever, the hamsters. But is this the, the first indicator of, of the motion tracker working? I think. I think it is. Uh, like, like you said, we did fail to mention the gerbil 
uh, scene, the cut gerbil scene back when it happened. I don't believe anybody ever talked about it. So we're mentioning it now for all of you that have called us out on that. But that yes, scene that... exists to make Hudson look like an idiot and to, to show off the motion tracker a little bit, but mostly to make Hudson look like a dipshit. I mean, it's it, okay. To me, when we talked about this a lot with Alien as far as false scares and so on, uh, sort of decoy moments in the movie, it would have been too much to have both, I think. that's So if we're going to talk about that added scene to the director's cut, mm-hmm. I'm going to say that we don't need that. Because we already know the characters well enough, and we don't need to establish how the tracker works. We kind of already know from Alien, or we get the idea, and then we get the idea in this scene to establish it in Aliens. And then in this scene, not to give anything away for next week, but it turns out to not be the payoff that we're expecting from it already. So to have two right. of those back-to-back is a little redundant. And, and, and we also get a look at the sort of graphical interface of the tracker when it has a signal and it's it is an incredible suspense engine isn't it i mean it's it's like a radar but it doesn't give you anything it's not going to tell you the type of thing it's not going to tell you the size it's not going to tell you its intentions all it is is something moving and every bit as effective as a bomb timer counting down is the distance away from you in meters and as those go down the suspense goes up and it's a very simple equation, but I think one that Cameron is absolutely masterful in including and in implementing. So what we've got is also, as you pointed out, a fairly telling order as they begin to move out. So who takes the lead? Well, the biggest gun. So you're going to have Drake and the smart gun taking the lead. And then you've got Frost, who is basically the navigator. He says, you know, talk to me, Frosty. And Frosty is supposed to give him second-by-second updates on the signal. Then you've got Hicks, kind of the senior guy, the corporal. And then you've got the command group. Now, you would think that it would be our intrepid lieutenant who would be in the lead. Yeah, this bothers me uh, a lot. I mean, it's it's it doesn't bother me from a filmmaking standpoint. But Gorman, as a character hiding behind Ripley is so obnoxious. It's so incredibly cowardly. Yeah. There's no way that that he went into her apartment, uh, ostensibly to assure her that the Marines had her back and they were protecting her. And it seems obvious that in a situation like this, he should step, be stepped in front of her and walking between the Marines and her, uh, but instead, he's kind of like cowering over her shoulder. And yeah, let's let's harken back to his two key lines. You wouldn't be going in with the troops. I can guarantee your safety. Yep. And all of that goes away when he has a look at the face huggers. And you realize that this is a, a complete rookie. Once again, it is reinforced that this is a rookie, a by-the-book guy who may or may not have been put in charge at the company's influence to give our boy Burke more influence over the squad and the mission. But he is clearly freaked out a little bit when you see him standing next to, to Bishop as Bishop reads the, uh, the clipboard. You, you can see that just, you know, this is something that the, the xenomorph is real. And he, you know, it's, it is a lot more than a bug hunt. And it is very real. And he is surrounded by Marines who are contemptuous of him. And yet he is entirely dependent on to save his own life. And instead, what's he going to do? He's going to get behind the six-foot-tall woman. And, of course, he's got Carter Burke right behind him guarding his back, which is, of course, just that much easier for Carter Burke to plunge a knife into his back when the time's right. 
Yeah, I do want to go back a, a little bit. When we were in the green room earlier, we were talking about how Hicks refers to the the movement as being behind them. Yes, yeah, she she he explains it to Ripley because uh, on the I think on the off chance that maybe she doesn't understand how motion trackers work. And then though it seems to me maybe my orientation is off, but when he says behind us, then they move forward. It's a little confusing, but you seem to have an explanation for that, or, well, or a guess at least. My thinking was that in terms – I don't view it as a mistake in geography because from what we know of Cameron, he, he's far too thorough to do that. And we also know that Aliens is his world. This is something that he has imagined, that he has storyboarded, that he has created. So I think he would be cognizant of his own geography. So when Hicks says behind us – I suspect he's talking about the direction f- toward the entrance, towards the uh, towards the uh, the door where they actually entered the complex. And right. in front of us would be deeper into the complex, beyond the med lab and all of that stuff. That's my best guess. But it, I don't think it's you know the logical thing for him to say would be. Uh, you know, back near the gate or back near the door or back in the the main corridor or something like that. But when he says behind us. I don't think it's a throwaway. I think Cameron is far too aware of his own geography and his own world to let that slip. Yeah, I mean, I buy that. It's just always been one of those things where in the moment, it's like, hey, he said behind us and they're moving forward. Oh, well, I'm, I'm too caught up in the scene to really give it too much thought. But here I just thought maybe talking it out for a second. This is this is the place, my friend. This is uh, this is where nitpicking is uh, is the coin of the realm. This is where you take James Cameron to task over every mistake, every error, every uh, piranha two, the spawning. This is uh, this is where it's it's your time. It's it's your fire back, your talk back, your your rebuttal. Well, I do want to say one good thing here. I mean, not that I don't have more than uh, one good thing to say about this minute, but there's something that happens here, and I, and I can't quite dig into my mental Rolodex far enough to pull out specific examples of other movies that do this. And it might just be that I've seen aliens so many times and I like this so much that I'm just remembering this particular moment, but I love it when something happens that catches everyone's attention and they call someone else for, uh, and ask a question like, are any of you guys around? Is there anybody? And when they get the answer, no, we're not there. And everybody jumps into action. I, th- I find that to be like an exciting little moment. They all stop and wait for Apone to answer. Yeah, I like that Very too. Silently. It lets you know that they have reason to be alarmed, and that's mm-hmm. conveyed to you. It's 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 very simple, isn't it? It's not. Yeah. There's not. He's not a guy who's um who's not showing his hand. He's not a guy who's who's making a lot of maneuvers and who's who's building something all that complex. But what he's doing, he's doing very elegantly. And I think that's Cameron's great skill is meat and potatoes filmmaking, but done superbly. I mean, the, the sequence of sound design here is nice. You get the, the beep, beep, beep of the tracker. That raises your heart rate a little bit. You get Hicks come in and speak the line. Okay, we know that there's somewhere behind us, he says. Then... Gorman makes the call. Okay, opponents, anybody? Or well, actually, first Ripley says, "Is it one of us?" Then Gorman makes the call to confirm whether it is or not. And everybody stops. Everything goes silent. And then as soon as Apon gives that answer, you hear the clanking of guns. You hear people start moving. All of that. Not only does it relay the the immediacy of the moment to you, but it also shows them uh, jumping right into their job. 
like as soon as it's time. So it shows them as competent. Even yeah. Gorman, even Gorman, he doesn't have to be asked to make that call, which you could almost think that he might have. Like they say, oh, is it one of Ripley says, is it one of us? And then there's a beat before somebody goes, well, ask Apone, you know, but Gorman actually was on top of it this time. So everything comes off like nice and, and, and slick here. And it's a it's a good moment. And again, you're it, it helps you go along with the ride a little bit. Like you're with them, it carries you along, and you're in just as much suspense as they are, waiting for that answer. And we also notice um, Frost says "Yo Hicks." He doesn't say "Lieutenant." He when mm-hmm. he says uh, when he's got a contact, the new the new lieutenant who is green as Palmolive friggin' soap is left out of the equation. And you'll notice also. They don't ask his permission to start investigating or to or, or to pursue the contact. Gorman only checks to see if it's a pwn. He doesn't do anything except fall into place behind his heavily armed fire team. That's yep. his only role in that scene. And I think it's, again, pretty telling. And then, you know, once they start in and, and Drake comes around and takes point with the smart gun, um, he immediately asks or, you know, ask i guess ask is as good a word as any frost to talk to him mm-hmm. says talk to me frosty and it's so quick like at first i even have the note that um maybe he jumps the line a little bit maybe um ralston here is a little quick with the line because it seems like he might want to f- make a few steps before he's like okay what's going on frosty but i actually think it's conveying um coming out with that question or, or order so quickly is conveying how tense he is. I mean, Cameron left it in there, right? Yeah. And it's his baby. So I agree. Uh, and I like that change because what we've got is a guy who pretty much eats lightning and craps thunder, right? I mean, how does he fix his camera? He headbutts it. So we already know that he can be a real hard ass. We also know when he meets Gorman and the command group coming in, that he can be deferential and professional. But now, like all the other Marines, I think he's pretty shaken up by the Xenomorph facehuggers. I think he's a little freaked out. So he's got his huge gun out in front of him. He is lowered into a crouch a little bit, and he is, I think, nervous. I do too. He seems very tense. Everybody seems a little tense. And of course, the idea is to make us tense. Uh, um, as the viewer, and then throw us this false scare that we get when Gorman bumps into the, what I guess it's like an office lamp or something that has, for some reason, a precariously placed cylinder on top of it. But he bumps into it and scares the shit out of everybody, including Ripley. And we're supposed to be feeling that tension with them so that we get that little release from that. But um, I wanted to ask, this, this was kind of the big question of the minute for me. Mm-hmm. Or, or the big maybe maybe it's not a question as much as it is just my opinion i think i've reached peak limit of timid scared nervous ripley and that's not to say that she shouldn't feel that way uh, as a character here but it's the writing this in um this late in the game i'm like okay i think this is it i think that's i've had enough <laughs> no more of that it's time for ripley to start like behaving like the Ripley I know. And and luckily we do get it pretty soon. I was going to say that it's good that in the next scene, she's given a task and a purpose that will help her find backbone, not for herself, but for someone else. Sure. And and I guess it could come off that I'm, I I guess the way I put that sounds like a criticism. I am actually, what I'm saying is I think that he might've really Cameron might've really pushed the envelope as far as he could go with that here. 
And now I'm going, okay, one more time and I've had it. And then he doesn't he doesn't do it one more time. And then next week we're going to finally get Ripley becoming proactive and, and not being the timid Ripley anymore. So I think it's actually kind of pitch perfect. I, I, I sounded pejorative in my phrasing of, <laughs> of it. But what I mean is, okay, enough already. Let's move on. And I think he understood that when he was writing the movie. And it's a nice device to have that brought about by an external force, an external need, right? So she can't really shake herself out of it. She has to shake herself out of it in order to to respond to a bigger need than simply getting over it. She has to be strong for someone else, even if she can't be strong for herself. Yeah, you don't want this. You don't want her to go into a bathroom and and splash water in her face and say, get it together, lady, to herself. You know, we want to motivate it with something. I mean, this movie would be so empty without the motivations behind her character's uh, arc, you know. So it's a good, it's good the way he's done it. And I think it's, it's perfect the way he pushes it to this limit. But, but I'm saying like at this point in the movie, I'm going, okay, got it. Now let's move on. And luckily he, he heard me or understood what, what he was going to get from the audience. Yeah. Otherwise it would just be like a Quincy episode. Right. Right. He would suspect murder, but without even a good reason. Yeah, exactly. And we don't, the last thing we want from our alien movies is a Quincy episode. <laughs> just, I'm just uh, saying he always suspects murder. Always. He does. Everybody that comes in, he suspects murder. Um, so now we are following this scene and we're following the tracker and the Marines creeping out, pulse rifle, smart gun at the ready. And we're making our way back into the familiar confines of a corridor on the the LV-426 colony. And we're through the door, and there could be anything out there. There could be anything out there. Yep. At this point, as an audience member, we have a lot of expectations, right? Like, we know the full evolutionary cycle of the xenomorph. Right. The Marines know, I mean, they probably have heard about the larger alien, but right now their minds are on facehuggers. Right. They had Ripley's report on disc, but I bet they didn't read it. I I bet even if they did, what matters most to them is what they've seen. Mm -hmm. And they just saw these uh, facehuggers alive and well inside of jars. And so they're probably looking for spiders. You know what I mean? They're they're looking low. And um, I think that'll play into the next minute for sure. It's interesting. You have to, you know, you have to really work to be in the Marines mindset a little bit here, because think of something that disgusts you, a snake, a roach, a spider, you know, maybe you don't like cicadas buzzing near you or whatever. Then think about something that disgusts you. That's the size of a cocker spaniel and that is entirely lethal, horrifying to look at and pardon the pun, completely alien in nature. I mean, you know, I, it can't be overstated how horrifying a facehugger is. And to see it there pressed up against the glass, eager to ram its ovipositor into something, that's a really terrifying visual. And you can instantly grasp why the Marines shifted in intensity from simply, okay, we got to find people to, oh, God, what if there are more of these things? And, you know, they were somewhat flippant about it when they were behind glass, right? You had Hicks joking with Burke about it. Uh, Then you have uh, Bishop going into scientist mode and just talking about it from a scientific aspect. But everybody's fairly relaxed there because they're like, oh, everything's behind glass. 
But then you take what they just saw and and match it with the sound of movement around them. And the first assumption's got to be that one of these horrible things is running around and might leap on our face. And yeah, I I totally understand why they're so tense. And you know, yeah, you're right. Like when you take into account the little things that creep us all out. And then put it in that giant, put it, everything, you know, if you're scared of spiders and snakes, both, they're both there. They're both right. embodied by the face together, Treble them in size and make them instantly lethal in the most horrifying way imaginable. This isn't, you know, anti-venin's not going to help you. You know, it's, you're, you're not going to be able to put a stake on this one and have the swelling go down. It's going to blow you out from the inside. And now maybe they're remembering a little bit of what Ripley said, and it's reinforcing that, combined with the fact that they are walking through a ghost ship, right? That there there is no one to be found in this colony, which was supposed to be a vibrant, bustling, industrious place. So pretty, pretty, pretty scary. You know, I guess there's something to be said about the fact that Bishop just confirmed that they had not figured out how to remove them from a person yet. Right. Basically, what he says is what we know is that you don't try to cut them off the face. But boy, there's no answer there. I mean, apparently they got face. I guess they got face huggers off somehow or they retrieved them out of the eggs. We talked about that extensively. Right. uh, You know, yesterday. But um, yeah, you don't know. All those things put together is just still more uncertainty and and terror awaiting you. Well, yeah. He said two alive. The rest are dead. But, you know, it might have killed the person. But there's no reason it would kill the facehugger because we know the facehuggers are insanely hardy. They are incredibly durable, right? Acid for blood, you know, unbelievably tough, you know, some kind of silicate outer coating or whatever. You know, they're they're really tough to hurt. And unfortunately, human beings to whom they attach themselves are much easier to hurt. So it makes sense that, yeah, we got ourselves a live facehugger, but oops, the patient didn't make it. Yeah, considering the fact that they have yet to see a live person. I guess their assumption would be that the patients didn't make it. Yeah, they're, my, yeah. they're in the med bay with no patients, so I guess that's right. A right. Safe and assumption. again, another empty place, and and even more frightening that med bay. Right, it's on an isolated planet, far from any medical help. So you would assume it's really well equipped, right? It, it, it yeah. has all sorts of surgical impl- implements, and the stuff on this on the Nostromo. 57 years ago was pretty fancy. So you'd assume it's even more capable now, like where our medical technology is now versus where it was in 1950 something. But, you know, it's still not enough to get a face hugger off a person and have that person lead a healthy, productive, spiritually fulfilling life. You know, that, that does raise the question though. what kind of doctors do you think they were able to recruit to go to LV-426? Huh. I think they had the top tier doctors, they were able to pay them. Or do you think they got Joel Fleshman doctors that have to go to LV-426 to pay off their student loans? Or like and, Dr. Clemens in Alien 3, right? Kind of a, right. a, a ship's doctor who's just one step ahead of a, you know, one port ahead of a malpractice suit. You know, I'm, I'm sure it's 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 got to be grueling duty. We know that there's a bar at the place, but probably not a lot of other recreational activities. So, yeah, I'm guessing you're or maybe you're getting folks just, oh, you know what it could be. It could be something like uh, the company re- pays for their med school, but they have to do like four years as company doctors before they can be doctors in the real yeah, world. That's what I'm saying, like Joel Fleshman in Northern yeah, Exposure. Yeah, exactly yeah. like I'm thinking... You I'm thinking there's around. a, I'm thinking that there's a uh, one-hour dramedy 
like network dramedy for Hadley's Hope as opposed to this prequel idea that we had. We have Hadley's Hope, oh, and it's a nice. medical dramedy where there's a doctor, and we just rip off Northern Exposure, and there's kooky. The bar has got this kooky old man that's married to a teenager, and um, <laughs> I don't so know. it'll 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 be like the Caprica for for Alien, sure, right? Sure. Yeah, because that was such a hit. Oh yeah, no, it'll be just like Caprica, but um, but much funnier, much funnier. Yeah, yeah Caprica was pretty funny, believe you. A little me. bit more zany. This was an amazing minute. I got to yes. tell you, this was a scary, scary minute, yeah. and I loved it. And it leads into some really good stuff for next week, that's for sure. Well, I won't be around to see it. Nope, you won't. I'm beginning to execute my suicide pact as soon as we're off the air. Okay. I mean, wait. I mean, I'm not invited back next week. I misspoke. No. Yeah, what? Yeah. No, 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 no. I will. I think I, I will listen to the episodes following this is what I meant to say. I think you guys have a great uh, a great company and uh, a, a great uh, a great effort and turn out a great product. I'm I'm pleased to be a part of it. Great. I'm I'm glad you're towing the company line and um, following the script. Thank Feels you. Feels good. Feels good. All right. Well, that's going to do it for minute number forty-five. Uh, you can find us at alienminute.com on Instagram at Alien Minute Podcast or on Twitter at Alien Minute Pod. Uh, come over to our T Public page and check us out over there at Alien Minute. You can also drop a few bucks into our virtual tip jar. That would help out greatly if you have the a uh, couple bucks lying around, some change you want to toss in there. You can't literally toss the change in there. You can wow. virtually do that. I need a prosthetic. I need a prosthetic limb, and uh, the tip jar would sure help. Oh, that would help. Big time. Yeah, we'll get get you something. We can carve Prost- something out for you. Prosthetic head. I need one. All right. And it's also Friday, so we want to give one more thank you to Pete the Retailer and Alex Robinson from Star Wars Minute. Thanks a lot, guys, for learning out the concept of the Minute by Minute podcast. All right. Well, that's going to do it. We'll see you next week for Minute number 46.